So today is July 22nd, 2018. Let's get some of the awkward out of the way. I have never felt more silly than wearing this headset. But I'm told that it's necessary for our sound. So let's just go ahead and direct things rightly here, Jim. Right? You know, we just, we'll, we'll make fun with it, okay? My wife cannot keep a straight face. Uh, it reminds her of that Bobby Brown concert she went to where he's saying it's my prerogative, you know? We do what we can. The sixth branch of ministry these days is the sound booth. Our message today is tribulation events, the consequence of thoughts. This is the fourth part in a series. I'm not going to lie to you. This will probably be a long message. If at any point you get, <laughs> if at any point you get bored, stand up and leave. I probably will not call you out by name, but I might. It's, uh, welcome to LCM. Look, today we are right now nine days away from Jennifer and my 25th anniversary. Speaking of tribulation events, I want to show you where this started. Those are not our children that we ate to become the people that we are. That's Jennifer and I at about 16 years old at a dance she asked me to. Do you know how happy I was when she asked me to that dance? Now, at this time in my life, I played on the defensive line, but I also returned punts. I could throw a shot put as far as anybody in our school, but I ran the 100 meters. So the only thing that was a bigger walking contradiction than that was that I spent all of my time, time trying to get stronger and faster, and I couldn't control my thoughts at all. I couldn't control my tongue at all. I couldn't control my impulses at all. And I didn't know what it was going to take for the two of us to succeed. I had no idea. At this time in my life, there are scars on my hands. I have became involved with Jennifer after being paid $100 to beat up two headbangers that she was hanging out with. It was going to be a rough run. And I didn't know what it was going to take. Let's move to the next one. This is 1991. It's our junior year. Uh, she keeps getting prettier. I keep getting uglier. And uh, in this year, we went through all of those things that young romances go through. You know, um, we broke up for a while, got back together for a while, broke up for a while. I had no idea what God had in store for us. Instead, uh, you can see in my lost eyes there. Uh, the world is kicking me around. I'm beginning even to lose hope. Let's go to the next one. This is the beginning of our senior year. I actually gave that hat to your son-in-law, Charlie, when he got married to Roma. And um, this is kind of the beginning of the end. In this year, our senior class had to pay for the damage that I did to a, a, a local venue where we had a dance. This, this year... Uh, I got in an interaction with an attorney's son that was quite damaging. And this year, Jen decided she didn't want anything else to do with me. Tribulation has a way of working out of you things that do not belong. You know, I didn't know what these tribulation years would produce. 
I had no idea the radical transformation that was going to happen through this tribulation. What the, what the Lord was going to do in us, through us, and for us was a mystery to me. But it was just a few months after this that I was radically born again. Let's go to that next one. This is 1993. Mullets were in in 1993, I assure you. And um, in 1993, with a brand new set of eyes, totally born again in love with the Lord, salvation prayer being, Lord, change me. Uh, she and I stood at an altar together, not knowing what would be before us in the years to come. Having met at 15 years old, being married at 18 years old, and now standing here at 43 years old, I just couldn't tell you what God was going to do. Let's take that next picture. This is my radiant bride. She's dressed in white. That was to reflect her purity. That is the same way that the Bible describes the bride of Christ. All of our wedding traditions come straight from the word. The reason we lift a veil is because there was an incident where Jacob fell in love with Rachel but got a Leah surprise. And uh, since then, we've taken a good look before um, we enter into the honeymoon suite. I didn't know then that right now standing here today, I'd be looking at my sexy grandma right here. (laughs) Jennifer's got three grandchildren now. And man, she's still hot. Yeah, she's embarrassed. I have to wear this headset. You have to wear this praise. She's embarrassed. She's turning colors. We have had an incredible love affair, and we're not halfway through with it. You'd be shocked to find out that that's what the Bible is. It's a love affair. Now, what God was after when the two of us met was not just our union. It was something that would our union would produce. When he has stolen your heart, when he has totally radically changed your life, he's after something that it will produce. I'd like to talk to you about our firstborn. Uh, This is when I gave birth to our firstborn. (laughs) Gabby, I don't know if you remember, but you unfriended me over that. My own mother thought this was me. It's actually not. It was a card somebody sent us when we had a child. But uh, at the time, you know, before such growth in my life, uh, apparently that looked like me. The Lord knew that something would come from these covenant relationships. Yeah, just take that in, man. Just, just let it wash over your soul. If you could fast forward... From We were married in 93, Judah came in 1997. We didn't know we would have three natural children and two adopted children. You know, God began to give us vision of that, but we didn't know what all it would produce. This is the day that we entered into uh, Sugarland for ministry. It's this next slide. We are in Oyster Creek Park in April of 2002. At this time, we... Um, have already gone through seven years in Baton Rouge and two years in Lafayette of ministry. And this was our start in Texas. And we had no idea it was going to produce what is here. You know, I knew I was called, but I didn't know what it would produce. I didn't know what we would have to go through. In those years, from then till now, there have been baseless lawsuits. There have been demonic accusations. A total economic surrender. 
we actually became uh, completely, totally insolvent to start ministry. You know, there have been defections. Uh, lost close, close friends over the gospel. Lost family members. We've had deaths. There was a lot of tribulation. I had no idea that those trials would produce something. But let me show you another picture on the very same rock. We didn't tell the Vincents where we took our ministry starting picture. We'd never shown it. It's not hanging up in our house or anything. When they were launched into ministry in 2016, they and Ibrahim, probably mostly Ibrahim, chose a spot, and it's the exact same rock. I want you to get this. Between 2002 and 2016, there were 14 years of tribulation, but our ministry produced people going to the furthest reaches of the world and the most unreachable people group in the world and the largest Muslim nation. Come on now, somebody. Tribulation produces something in you. Let's take our next one. Two years later, the Brassos, also not knowing where our ministry began, happened to have chosen the same rock. The, the camera's a little bit closer, but they're seated in the exact same place. Can I tell you that seated here right now, the Lord has conceived something for you. You will walk into it if you walk faithfully. There will be something beautiful that is going to come out of your relationship. And you just can't see it yet. And I don't know what you're going to have to go through to get there. But I'm going to tell you this. It's worth it. Every minute of it is worth it. You couldn't plan these kind of surprises if, if you had a master committee. If you have the arising church planning it, you couldn't do it. When you think of this being 2018, understand that in the meantime, there was a church planted in Chicago from this ministry. There was a church planted in Virginia from this ministry. There was a church replanted in Louisiana from this ministry, plus the other two Texas churches, plus the missionaries. Can I tell you that tribulation is worth it? The refining of the bride is worth it. As we do this, you can move forward. I think there's one more. Yeah. I want to go over these three messages in a sentence or two for you. That way, those of you that are new here this morning will know what it is we're talking about. We're in the fourth part of a series. Our first part, we learned that destination for a Christian is the resurrection of the dead, not heaven. The consequence of faith is waiting to go to heaven produces a faith in transportation rather than trusting in God to bring life from the dead for transformation. Now, get hold of that. If you came into the kingdom believing, if I pray this prayer, then what that means is I go to heaven, and that's what your faith is in, then anytime you're in a difficult situation, you will hope that you get to pray and just go to a different situation. That is not the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel is that you are radically transformed. That even if you die, your body will rise again in a form that will never die. And by the way, the meek inherit the earth. Not somewhere else. We inherit the earth. In part two, we covered the separation of the sheep and the goats. That message was called consequence of deeds. We learned that you are credited with righteousness through faith. 
And that among those who say, Lord, Lord, only those with righteous deeds produced by that faith are considered sheep. That's a staggering realization that every parable in the book of Matthew is written to believers, not to unbelievers. That every time we're reading, it's actually a warning for the saved, not the lost. Biblical faith requires credited righteousness, but it also requires a faith that produces deeds. You're better off knowing that. Knowing that God expects something of you. That he joined with you because he wants to produce something in you, for you, and with you. Then we came to part three. It was judgment to come. The consequences of accountability. We learned that all men are destined to be judged, whether they're saved or lost. But judgment begins where? Judgment begins with us. It occurs at the return of Christ, but it's also occurring every time the Spirit of the Lord shows up in your life. He's bringing you under judgment now so that you will not come under judgment later. This means it's encouraging when you're convicted. It's encouraging when you're told something needs to change because he's preparing you for the life to come. Our hope in covering these three things is that it would be evident to you that you need to be transformed, that you need to show your faith by what you do, that you receive life-giving correction along the way so that you will be richly rewarded at the end of your race. That's the point. Christianity is not decisionism. It's not, I made a decision and that was the extent of my commitment. That decision is the beginning of a lifelong journey that has to be finished with more zeal than it begins. Today, our message is tribulation events, the consequences of thoughts. There are clear consequences, both good and bad, to what you put your faith in, to what you do. And to whom you hold yourself accountable. And last of all, there are clear consequences to the thoughts that you entertain. When you think about something all of the time, it begins to control how you react to certain circumstances. Now, I showed you that picture of my beautiful bride, right? In her white dress. I did that because the Bible is a wedding story from beginning to end. That's not necessarily how everyone sees it. But it is one of the strongest motifs that is in the Bible. It really is about the Lord of glory being united to his bride who has been made radiant in the deeds that he prepared and empowered her to do. I want to start with our first scripture in Exodus 6. Because of the amount of subject matter we're going to cover today, we're going to put every scripture on the screen. I'm not going to wait for you to turn to them. But everyone will be on the screen and then a PDF of our notes will appear with this message online. In Exodus 6, um, it says, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. 
I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession for I am the Lord. If we could put our next slide on the screen. The way that this passage is structured is really beautiful. Part of it is cut off at the bottom. When you see the scripture on this screen, and here I've taken the scripture and I've separated it as it would read in the Hebrew and as many scholars have seen this passage, there are seven I will statements in it. God is fascinated with sevens. The heptatic structure is not something that is only in the book of Revelation. It actually appears from the first verse of Genesis all the way through. He begins with a declaration, I am the Lord. When he says that, he's proclaiming his character, his authority, and his reputation. He's doing that because he's about to propose marriage. Now, when Charlie married Joellen, Charlie Brown... Was Charlie Brown before he married Joellen? And if Charlie uh, lives and his wife goes on to live with the Lord in, in the kingdom of God, he will still be Charlie Brown. But if Charlie goes on and Joellen marries again, her name changes. There is something about the nature of the way that God says, I am the Lord, that is, I was the Lord before I called you. My character, my authority, my reputation is not in question. I am going to do these seven things for you. And then he finishes it with, I am the Lord. It's as if he is saying, I am the Alpha and I am the Omega. And in between that beginning and that end, I want you to know seven things that are going to happen for you. On this next slide, I isolated just those seven things. He said, I will bring you out. I will free you. I will redeem you. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. I will bring you to the land. I will give the land to you. This was a wedding proposal. In fact, all Jewish weddings that are orthodox have these elements in them. This is like God saying from Alpha Eternity in a Passover, I will bring you out from your old life under the blood of a lamb. In unleavened bread, I will free you from the presence of sin in your life. I will teach you to hunt it down and root it out. In first fruits, you will begin to see new things grow because of your redemption. In Pentecost, you will recognize that you have been taken as the people of the Lord because His Spirit will dwell in you. At the Feast of Trumpets, the whole world, including you, will see... The Lord appear in the air. It's an announcement that the groom is coming for the bride. On the day of atonement, you actually go home with the Lord to Israel. You inherit the entire land. You are redeemed and it is redeemed. Tabernacles was a party where he said, you should redeem the nations. And by the way, I'm going to give you all of the nations. You will rule over the world. In this one passage, we have an eschatological plan that is the Bible. We have it in seven statements. We have it memorialized in seven feasts occurring again and again and again. 
By the time we move to Exodus 19, this will be verse 4. This wedding promise starts to get clearer. He says, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings. Any husbands carry your wife over the threshold on that day? Yeah. He carried her on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, when you think about being brought to the Lord, unfortunately, because of 2,000 years of bad preaching, you think of being taken to heaven. He did not take them to heaven. He brought them to himself on a mountain in Israel. He descended from the heavens with a dark cloud and they met him there as they rose on the mountain. Much like the people of God rise to meet the Lord in the air in the book of Thessalonians, but set up a feast on the mountains in Israel. The whole perspective of going off world is completely foreign to the Bible. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. You know, when Moses said this to the Israelites on behalf of God, it spoke of a new position. They would stand with God on earth. That was their position. Do you stand with God on earth? See, you don't have to wait until you, quote, get to heaven to stand with God. You're supposed to stand with him on the earth as his covenanted betrothed bride. Secondly, when he calls them his treasured possession, this speaks of our relationship. Having stood with God at an altar, you are showing the world that he is your most treasured and you are his most treasured. Man, what a good feeling to go to bed at night knowing that the Lord of glory treasures you. Man, you can tell what somebody cares for something by the price they pay for it. A $2,000 sled without air conditioning in the Texas summer heat might get parked next to a gravel pit. It might follow closely behind semis. But if you pay $50,000 for that new beautiful thing, you're probably going to park it away from shopping carts, right? The Lord spent His Son's blood to obtain you. That artists speak to your worth. You have self-esteem problems. It's because you need to re-examine your position and your relationship with the Lord. Lastly, in this passage, we see something else as a bride. We see that she becomes something. One of the major problems in Christianity today is that we teach salvation, but we don't teach salvation unto becoming something. So what happened when you got saved? Well, I get help in this life and heaven in the next. That's, that's not anything that is different. And when we say, I'm just an old sinner saved by grace, there's no transformation in that. He promised Israel that she would become something. When they follow Jesus, they follow Jesus to become something. He told Israel, you will be for me a nation of priests. See, you would stand with the Lord. You would be treasured by the Lord. And you would function to the rest of the world as priests. As born again believers. You, by Jesus, are turned into fishers of men. By God, you are turned into a function of priest. The goal is 
that you become like your groom. It's a funny thing when my beautiful bride and I got married. She wouldn't go pay an electric bill. She was so shy. And back then you had to go pay them. You couldn't do it online. She didn't like to speak to people. How many of you in this church have been corrected by Jennifer? Raise your hand. Can I tell you what a transformation that is? She's become more like the one she's married to. And we as the body of Christ are to be transformed into the image of God. The way that you're transformed is by living a life like Christ lived. He was never miraculously escaped from difficulty. Ezekiel 16 in verse 8 is just a passage of Scripture as we move through the prophets that clearly indicates a Matamoros kind of wedding. You know, my friends in Matamoros, when they want to get married, they say, I want that one. And and then they respond, and they're married. There is often no invite. There's none of those things. Ezekiel said, later I passed by, and when I looked and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. Do you see how God speaks of Israel as possessive? She belongs to him. Now, there is going to be a wedding ceremony before the whole world. This was prophetic language just to emphasize the way in which she belonged to him. I want to take a a more specific look at a passage. That'll be hard for you to read. We can also put Isaiah 62 on this screen if you don't mind. This is Isaiah 62 from my Bible in verse 1. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet. By the way, Zion and Jerusalem are exactly the same place. Till her righteousness shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see righteousness and all kings uh, your glory. Come on, man. Isn't that good? The nations are going to see it. Then next he says, And you will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted, for your name will, for, uh, or name your land desolate. This means that at some point in Israel's history, in 740 BC, God was already saying, the bride, the one that I picked, she's going to be called desolate. She's going to be called deserted. But he says, but you will be called. Say, will be. be. You will be called Hespa. Hespa means my delight is in her. Now, come on, ladies. Would you rather be called deserted or my delight is in her? And your land, Beulah, which means married. For the Lord will take delight in you, and your land will be married. As a young man marries a maiden, so your sons will marry you. The word sons there can mean builder. It's in the plural. I I could explain that. But if you'll take my word for it, somebody would come from Israel that was both a son of Israel and the builder of Israel. He would stand in God's stead and marry Israel on behalf of God. Come on now, that's beautiful. 
This is Hebrew parallelism. As a young man marries a maiden, so your sons or builder will marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you. The idea is when you're looking at this, the man that marries a maiden is the same as the builder son who marries you, is the same as the bridegroom who rejoices over a bride, is the same as God who rejoices over you. If you put that next slide up, they actually did not print in my notes. So I'm looking at blank. Zion, Jerusalem is a bride shining in righteousness and salvation. That's the destiny of God's people. Destined to be a beautiful bride. But there's a process to get there. Nations and kings will witness this event. These are straight from Isaiah 62. God will give a new name to his bride. That's good news. It's not uh, Rodham Clinton. It, it, you, you get God's name. Not a hyphenated name that is part of the old man. No reference to what you were. Only to what you have become. Three uh, I'm sorry, four, the Zion Jerusalem bride is held as a jewel in the hand of God. Somebody say a jewel. jewel. Ladies, all you want to be is treasured. Your whole life is spent hoping that you are treasured and wanting to be pursued. It's why you have those magnifying mirrors in, in your uh, bathrooms and the little compact mirror in your purse and If there's a dude in here wearing lipstick, let's counsel with you afterwards. But ladies, there's a reason that you do the things that you do. God put it in your heart to want the affection of your groom. He put it in the heart of a Christian to want to be pleasing to him. Though once deserted, in Isaiah 62, she is now no longer deserted. It's both a prophecy of desertion... And a prophecy that she would not be. She has to end up with him delighting in her. And she has to be married to the builder son who represents God. Now who does that sound like? The builder son. Come on now. That ought to be something that blesses you. Do we have another slide here? Okay. In this passage, I'm going to read to you from Jeremiah 3.14 on this screen. And I'm going to summarize it on this screen. In Jeremiah 3.14, return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I want you to notice on this screen that God is acknowledging up front that there is a faith problem. But he still calls himself her husband. See, their lack of faith does not nullify God's faithfulness. Somebody say that's good news. He says, I will choose you one from a town and two from a clan and bring you to Zion. There is a remnant in every generation of Israelites that goes to join the bride of Christ. There is coming a generation when every Israelite will be saved. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart. One of the things that characterizes this in Israel's history is that their pastors will have hearts like God. Can I tell you, have you ever turned on TBN or picked up Fox News and seen the latest jet that was purchased for $54 million and noticed that very often pastors do not have a heart like God? They don't care for the poor and the oppressed. They're actually butchering the sheep. Just to feed themselves. There will be a day when that is not true. Especially 
in Israel. Those pastors with new hearts will lead you with knowledge and understanding. In those days when your numbers have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, men will no longer say the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It will never enter their minds or be remembered. It will not be missed, nor will another one be made. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of God. The third characteristic of Jeremiah 3 is something better than the ark is present in Israel. Specifically, present in Jerusalem. It will be the throne of God, and the throne of God will not be on Mount Olympus as Zeus. It will not be some guy that looks very much like Bosch in the back. A beautiful, uh, almost deified beard on a throne. In fact, his throne will be in Jerusalem where he will rule everything. And all the nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. Four, the nations attend this event. They come to the throne of God in Jerusalem. No longer will they follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. Do you remember what caused the Noahic flood? God looked and saw that the inclination of man's heart was evil all of the time. There will be an age where starting with Israel, his throne will be in Jerusalem and he will have cured the evil inclination in their hearts. He will have totally changed them. Now, I personally married one that was already perfected. But you may, I've heard, you may have had to work to pastor and lead your wife in a way that helped shape her heart. It's good to know that the Lord of glory chose Israel while she was powerless, chose Israel while she had not very many redeeming qualities. And then he worked and worked through his leadership and edification to totally change her so that she would in fact arrive at radiance. I tell you, if you read Ephesians 5, husband, you will find out that is still your job today. In those days, the house of Judah will join the house of Israel. Together they will come from a northern land. Somebody say northern. Northern. I gave your forefathers as an inheritance. In addition to no more evil hearts, it speaks of a time that Israel would be reunified. And those words, house of Israel and house of Judah, can mean nothing other than the genetic descendants of those people. And then they're going to get the same land that was given the patriarchs. What I'm doing for you is I am laying out a wedding story. The wedding story will always start with her being in slavery and always end with her ruling the world with God, having taken on his name. She goes through hell on earth to get there, but she always arrives at the goal. Hosea 2.19, he promises so clearly that he will betroth her forever. He will betroth her in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. If you read the rest of that passage, it even goes on to say, even though I called her not my people, she will be my people. The point is, God is not married multiple times. He, he picked the one that he wanted out of every nation on the earth. And then he is true to his name and true to his word. He makes her in to what she's supposed to be. 
It couldn't be any clearer from the foundational Older Testament that God will call His bride back to Himself as He purifies her. He will refine her, changing her heart and renewing her purpose. It was a mystery that you and I could be included in that process. The Newer Testament continues in the exact same wedding motif. To get them in in a way that you can see them clearly. We have the New Testament law at the top. We have the New Testament writings in the middle. And we have the New Testament book of prophecy at the end. If you think that we are so Old Testament focused that the principles we're describing are not in the Newer Testament, you need to pay careful attention. In Matthew 22, 2, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. What is the kingdom like? It's a wedding. It's a wedding where a son is getting married. Could that be the builder son? Could that be the one Isaiah was talking about? Look how John chooses to introduce Jesus. This is John the Baptist. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. Doesn't it sound very much like Jesus is being introduced as the groom come to marry Israel? God's plan never changes. He doesn't need a plan B. In 2 Corinthians 11.2, Paul, who had an incredible revelation of the way that you and I are included in Israel's destiny by faith, says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ. By the way, that's kind of a statement of deity, isn't it? If God said he would marry her, and he said it over and over and over, and now we're finding out it's Christ who marries her in, on behalf of God, that speaks to the role of the Christ, deified. So that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. In the book of Revelation, near the end of the book, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. When you recap these saints, think of what it means for you. Okay, I'm throwing a lot at you and, and it might be like drinking from a fire hose. I'll summarize it in ways that will help you, I promise. In Matthew 22, we saw a properly clothed wedding participant. In other words, those who did not prepare themselves, even though they arrived at the wedding, were thrown out. In John 3, Jesus is clearly the builder son representing God rejoicing over his bride. In 2 Corinthians 11, God had always been presented as the husband, but now it's Christ who is the fullness of the deity in bodily form that is the husband. And in Revelation 19, at the actual wedding event, it's only for those that have, quote, made herself ready. See, our eschatological series has been telling you about what is to come for one reason. So that you can make yourself ready. Do you want to get ready? Yes. Do you want to get ready? Yes. That is the purpose of a church. To train you for your works of service. To get you ready so that nothing in this book would surprise you. So that you know about the endurance that is ours in Christ. This brings us to a place where we can benefit from the last three messages when you think about it. 
In part one, was your faith in being transported to another realm or was it in receiving a glorified body on earth? Which was it? A glorified body. Now, consider, would you make yourself ready if your faith was being transported? Would you be ready to stand through anything if the goal of your faith was to escape everything? See, something is wrong with that. Well, watch this. Do, do you want heaven? Well, yeah. Good, because God loves you and he wants you to have heaven. Well, that's great, because I love me too. What will happen when you get to heaven? You wouldn't like it because you haven't prepared yourself to be like God here and now. The whole point is that heaven is coming this way. Have you prayed uh, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the whole point. What you put your faith in matters. Secondly, in part two, the consequence of deeds. Did you learn that every parable in Matthew was a warning to the household of God? That was so that you would be inspired towards the righteous deeds that are driven by faith. That, that show whether you're a sheep and goat. You know, if you rob yourself of those warnings, if you read those warnings as for everybody else but not for you, well, what encouragement do you have to make yourself ready? All you do is sit and soak in salvation, declaring yourself a believer. I believe you're supposed to be a doer as well. In part three, didn't we see that judgment begins with the house of God? How can we endure in right standing with him if we don't listen to him now? See, that accountability, which is the number one thing that American Christians hate. They seek to avoid it. That accountability is the Spirit helping you arrive at Revelation 19. Make yourself ready. Church, are you making yourself ready? Can you look at this week in your life and see that the Lord is correcting your course? Can you see that he is robbing things out of your heart? Did you hear prophecy after prophecy? I think we had two in other tongues and at least three interpretations today that were aimed at getting rid of blemishes that are unbecoming of a bride. When Jen stood in that wedding dress, you know, it wasn't tie-dyed. It didn't have a giant stain down one side. And if you were her friend and you loved her and she had a giant stain down the side, wouldn't you stop her before she got to the altar? The Bible is a wedding story. And what the, the dress is, is literally your deeds done in righteousness. See, he's trying to clothe you for an eternity in what you do today. That's what he's trying to do. Maximus in the uh, movie Gladiator totally ripped off Revelation. He plagiarized it. He said, your deeds will echo in eternity. Those aren't the words of a, of a Roman pig. Those are the words of a Jewish rabbi. He, he, he said that. He said it to John on the island of Patmos. Thoughts have consequences. The biggest apostasy may come from the shock of people that don't make themselves ready. If you have been told your whole life that all you have to do is believe, and then you encounter a situation where you actually must stand. You can feel like you were sold a, a bill of goods. You can feel like you were lied to. 
I reject the modern version of the wedding story. In the 1830 John Nelson Darby kind of story, the bride doesn't stay on earth. She doesn't have to fight for anything. She doesn't have to stand against anything. In fact, she is simply taken to some other place when things get difficult. She doesn't have to be transformed. Unless we're talking about Easter, we talk about resurrection. Secondly, in the modern version of the story, never preached anywhere in history before 1830, what she does really doesn't matter as long as she believes that she's a sheep. There is nothing refining her, nothing purifying her, nothing that she passes through to show the genuineness of her faith. Lastly, in the modern version of the story, she has no concern about accountability or being transformed because she just wants to escape the difficulties to come by way of the rapture. I want to show you something Leonard Ravenhill said. He said, today's church wants to be raptured from responsibility. I want to tell you that the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture cannot be demonstrated anywhere in history before the year 1830. It is the work of a guy named John Nelson Darby, and it has taken over the American South lock, stock, and barrel. But it's not the historical position of the church. The historical position of the church is that what God called, he would refine, he would redeem, he would purify, and she would stand against all odds and arrive at the altar with God before the whole world. Can you imagine a wedding story? Where Jennifer and I get to the week of the wedding, the last seven years, and Jen disappears. That's not, that's a, that's the story of a runaway bride. That's, that's not a Bible story. That's something that you would do in a Hollywood version, don't you think? I want to cover with you Proverbs 23. When I do, Proverbs 23 is going to feel slightly out of context at first. Do not eat the food of a begrudging host. Do not crave his delicacies. For he is the kind of person who is always thinking about the cost. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. In the eschatological world and in your practical daily life, There are many that say all of the right things, but because they're worried about what God's plan will cost them, their heart is invested somewhere other than where God's plan is. If you let and sit that digest for a minute, you'll realize that very few Christians are aimed at enduring all for the glory of Christ. Very few Christians are praying, Lord, I'm willing to be put in any situation that you would be glorified. Very few Christians are saying, Lord, gain glory through me. Whatever I have to endure, whatever I have to suffer, it is an honor to be wed to you. Very few Christians think like that, and it's the consequence of having wrong thoughts taught to us about our eschatology. In this case, you're eating a meal with a man and you feel like you have friendship, but it's not genuine friendship because all he can think about is what that meal is costing him and you're eating it for free. Man, the biblical faith is not based on if the plan is free of suffering, then I'll do it. The very father of our faith is said 
to be Abraham. What kind of suffering did he go through? When you think of Abraham, go to Romans 4 on our screen. Look at Romans 4, 17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls the things that are not as though they were. You realize that God calls you a saint before you're ever made into one, but you must be made into one. You realize he calls you his bride before you are ever actually his bride, but you are made into his bride. In the biblical world, if you walk up to a woman and say, I'd like to marry you, and she says, I accept, you are married. You just haven't consummated your marriage. And if it takes two years for you to have the ceremony, you're married the entire time. It is only for a non-Jewish audience that we have to delineate the difference between engagement and marriage. Because no groom could break his engagement. God did not break his engagement with Israel. Not at any time. Do you know why that's good news for you? If you're engaged to him now, he will not break it with you. He, he will shape you. He will form you. If your heart is wrong, he will help you do surgery on your heart to make your heart right. He will mold you into the bride that he wants you to be if you are just willing and obedient. While you were still powerless, he knew what he could make you become. Our God, like any good groom... I looked into the eyes of a scared 15-year-old girl, and I knew that she could become more. I knew that she had the ability to be a great mother. I knew that one day she'd be an amazing grandmother. Now, I didn't know how all of that stuff would happen or what we would have to do to get from here to there, but it became my job to lead her into that destiny. I am a wicked man. And I know those things about my bride. What do you think God, who is the epitome of righteousness, knows about you? See, he's not leading you to defeat after defeat. He's actually leading you to the victorious bride of Jesus Christ. Verse 18 in Romans says, against all hope, Abraham in hope. Somebody say against all hope. That's missing from today's eschatology. That whole concept is gone. There is no against all hope. We're scared to death to be tested in any way. That may say something about the lack of genuineness in people's faith. Maybe that's why we quit on our relationships when they get hard. We don't have an against all hope mentality. There is a consequence to thought. I'm looking out at some brothers that I know are struggling. You call me, we work through it, we talk through it. If you have an escape mentality, all you want is different circumstances. Can I tell you, you could be put in the Garden of Eden and you would still struggle with the same sinful nature? We don't need to escape. What we need is to be transformed. And when the bride of Christ can stand all hell's fury on earth and stand up to it, then she has been transformed. And that is to the glory of God. To move towards practicality, as we continue this message, we've provided for you an outline. Some of you have those in your seat? Okay. That outline now we're going to start to work through. The first part of the outline is motive of relations. First Chronicles 28, 9 through 10 is our first scripture in that subject. And you, my son, 
Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father and serve him with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart and understands every motive behind the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. God will make the willing participant into a pure spotless bride. But if you forsake your groom and you will not be made into a pure spotless bride, then he will reject you. That's missing from Christianity. Just like sheep and goats is made to be something other than a judgment of the house of God. Just like the parables of Matthew are contorted into something else. You need to know something. There is a price for persisting in disobedience. But there is a reward for persistently persevering in attempted righteousness. There is nobody that was ever declared a goat because they tried and failed. All of them failed to try. They didn't do anything. There is no mention of how well the sheep fed uh, the hungry, how well they visited those who were in prison, whether they did a good job or bad job, just that they tried to do it. Do you understand the difference? Your faith provokes righteous action. And God will clothe you in that righteous action. If you don't have a faith that is provoking you to righteous action, then you don't have a faith. When we get to uh, 1 Corinthians 4 or 5, still talking about motives of relations. Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. At the coming of the Lord, one of the chief things that happens according to 1 Corinthians 4 or 5 is that the motives of men's hearts are exposed. There is no greater opportunity than tribulation for that to occur. How many times have you been in circumstances that revealed something hidden in your heart that you needed to change? I was praising Jesus, got up excited, went out some years ago to work on a, a, a Ford diesel with a 6.0 in it. Happy, praying in the Holy Ghost. Two hours later, with a curse word flying from my lips, Punched the bumper and broke three knuckles on my right hand for the first time since I had been born again. Uh, can I tell you that circumstance can reveal things that are in your heart that are shaming, embarrassing? Now, that's not who I am, at least not who I want to be. God revealed it through tribulation so that his spirit could lead me out of judgment and into something that is righteous. Guys, if you're failing, you've, you've found one more way that you need to be led out and saved. You know, Paul told Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely so people can see your progress. Let me ask, can people see progress in your life? By the way, it's the leader's lives you're supposed to see progress in. They're not supposed to stand up perfected. You're supposed to see their progress. That's why there's messages in this church from 2002 still online. We want you to see our progress. I'm so embarrassed of some of those messages, only slightly more embarrassed by this headset. 
Standing in difficulties reveals whether or not you are following Christ for secondary gain or to give him your whole life. To illustrate that, let me point it out like this. There are two hotel rooms. You got two hotel rooms in your mind? One of them's a bridal suite, a honeymoon suite. Think about that for a minute, right? That's probably not down at the Motel 6. But next to it is another suite. It's not the honeymoon suite, not the bridal suite. This one rents by the hour. So in these two hotel rooms, we have two very different things happening. In the bridal suite, we have a lifetime commitment that is based on the total surrender of your life and your body to the other person. Lifetime. Of course, in the hourly, we just have kind of an exchange of uh, what two people might want in the moment with no long-term term commitment. The bride in the bridal suite has been beside the groom positionally. She is treasured beyond all in a relationship. And she becomes a lifelong help, a priest in function. Of course, in the one night stand, they occupy no position in your life. There's no continual proximity to the groom. They're not treasured They're not part of the function of the groom. But essentially the same activities are happening in both rooms. Let's look at that for just a second. Matthew 24, 12. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Not an hourly commitment, a lifelong commitment. Not a commitment that as long as it's fair weather, a commitment forever. Revelation 2.25 to the church of Thyatira. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end. I will give authority over the nations. You want to be a priest over the nations? You have to hold on to what he's given you. And you have to stand until the end. In 1 Corinthians 1.8. He will keep you strong to the end. So that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. He will keep you strong for how long? To the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of the Lord. Nowhere in here is the kind of hourly commitment. Because when we talk about a bride, we're talking about a lifetime commitment. When we talk about an hourly commitment, we're talking about a whore. Some of their actions are the same. Some of their dressing is the same. But their motives are entirely different for being in relationship with you. You know, only two times in all the book of Revelation. How many times? Does the phrase, come, I will show you, appear. Two times. Where an angel or or an angel says, come, I will show you. I want to show you those two times. Revelation 17, 1. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls. Anybody been interested in the seven bowls, the seven trumpets? The reason I've listed everything in sevens in this series is so that you'll get used to hearing the way that God speaks. Seven is a way of saying perfect perfection. He's always done things in seven. Seven I will statements to make you a bride. Seven feasts to finish his eschatological plan. Seven appears everywhere in God's plan. Seven is a way of saying a perfect or complete. 
One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to me and said, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on the many waters. Are you getting this? Motive of relations. Two hotel rooms. One is an hourly commitment. The other is a lifelong commitment. The first of two things that God says in the book of Revelation, Come, I want to show you something, is a prostitute. The second time he says it is in Revelation 21.9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came to me and said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Two things the angel wanted to point out. And by the way, the angel is the one that has the bowls in the plagues. Something about the tribulation reveals who has the hourly whorish commitment And who has the lifetime sacrificial commitment of a bride? In Revelation 17, the global harlot is dressed in purple, scarlet, and gold, as well as precious stones. She's a counterfeit. She's an experience for a price. A business that does not teach sacrificial holiness to God, but rather adultery, trade, and when necessary, violence against the saints. In Revelation 21, by contrast, the bride, a beautiful bride announced for the very first time by one of the tribulation angels. She is described like a city because she is the very habitation of God. And her deeds are likened to precious materials going all the way back to the foundation of the apostles who proved the genuineness of their faith by what they suffered. You see that? The city in Revelation that is the bride is built with precious materials that passed through a fire of suffering and came out the other side. We're going to move on from motive of relation and we'll catch our next topic. But before I do, I want to read you a quote. In the first century in Palestine, Christianity was a community of believers. Then Christianity moved to Greece And it became a philosophy. Then it moved to Rome and became an institution. Then it moved to Europe and became a culture. Then it moved to America and became a business. We must not yield to a worldly, whorish business model that despises the simple days of a shepherd meeting with a small flock. The simplicity of meetings in homes and enjoying big meals where each one has something to offer the assembly using his or her spiritual gifts for the edification of the church. We must not despise churches where the elders and pastors who lead meetings also work and live side by side with the congregation. You and I are being purified as the bride of Christ. We are not paying for a performance like a prostitute. That takes us to gaining glory. This is maybe my favorite part of today. Say gaining Gaining. glory. glory. Gaining glory. God likes to set ambushes for people. In fact, when he leads uh, Joshua uh, against Ai, he he sets an ambush uh, that they would be successful. In other words, the people of God look like they're being defeated until... uh, A greater force shows up and rescues them. When you get to Joshua 9 and 10, where we're talking about the Gibeonites and the five Canaanite kings, God is able to rain down stones from the sky 
and strike in a battle only the enemy, even though they're all standing on the field. And we're worried about him making a distinction in the tribulation. It's like we've not read our Bibles. In Exodus 14, we have the first of only four occurrences in the Bible. Four times God says he wants to gain glory. I will gain glory. Four times in the Bible. Three of them are in Exodus 14. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all of his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. So the Israelites what? Do you know what they were being asked to do? They were being asked to put themselves against the Red Sea and with only one escape that Pharaoh could block. That's the expression, trapped between the devil and the deep blue sea. It means that you have a no-win scenario, no way out. Unless, of course, God rescues you. Do you know that God decided to put Israel in that position just to teach the gods of Egypt a lesson? Exodus 12, 12 says that he is judging the gods of Egypt. You think the story is about Pharaoh and Moses and their prospective peoples. It's actually about their gods. The God that Pharaoh was worshiping and the God that Moses was worshiping. And God was showing that his people could be at extraordinary disadvantage and he would still deliver them. That is a pattern Exodus is a pattern of things that were coming. Exodus, for every single time that a plague happens, Egypt and Israel are in one place. But God makes distinctions between Israelites and Egyptians. Since we have no need to fear, unless you're indistinct from the world. And then you may have reason to fear. In Exodus fourteen seventeen, he says it again. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. See, God likes to set ambushes. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all of his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The greater the odds against God's bride, but God causes his bride to prevail, the greater glory that he gets. That's awesome. In Exodus fourteen eighteen, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Does it sound like God is intimidated by overwhelming circumstances? You know, you have to become very much like your groom. If you're going to be wed to him, you have to be able to look at intimidating circumstances and say, I'm more than a conqueror. The attitude that says we won't have to face trouble we won't have to face tribulation. God would never do that to us. Is spitting in the face of the centuries of the faithful that have already endured it. I have friends already that have been martyred for the faith. Some that have died this year. Okay. And to say that God would not require that of his bride is mocking Christianity. Ezekiel 28, 22 is the last place God says, I will gain glory. Let me just summarize that for you in your notes by saying, within the midst of a occupier, within the midst of a nation that was overthrowing Israel, God still could show himself holy. Do you know what that means? It means you can be imprisoned. You can be put to the sword. You can be overrun in every way. And if you will not yield to the enemy, but instead your great love for the groom is what carries you through, God gets glory through it. God will use an ambush 
and you are the bait. He desires you. It refines you. It shows that you trust him. And it shows the whole world that your relationship is real. It's not whorish. Romans 8.35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Consider the absurdity of putting that on a shirt and you consider persecution somebody's not nice to you at the gym you consider persecution that somebody cut in front of you in line but because you're a christian you're not going to retaliate that verse was written when people faced daily slaughter the very thing that the church is saying nobody will ever have to face because god would not beat his bride of course god would not beat his bride but he will refine her That statement is as ignorant as it is biblically devoid of fact. As we move on to our next topic, let us take note of the spirit that was in Jesus during Gethsemane. In Gethsemane, he said, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. What if that was our heart? What if we were facing our own crucifixion, and we were saying, your will be done. Father, glorify your name. Did you know that that's what every Christian in this room is actually called to? Because Matthew 16, 24 says, unless you deny yourself and take up your cross, you cannot follow him. So what is every person in the room destined to face? Your own death. That is the point of Christianity. A bride that cannot be separated from the groom even if you kill her in horrible ways. She loves him that much. Don't you think our groom is worth that? This silly escape mentality is ruining people in bunches, in groves. And the reason that it is is there's a consequence to thinking like that. You're always looking for the escape hatch, never looking for the sincerity of your faith, the sincerity of his love for you to carry you through the difficulty. There's been a lot of talk about marks. Let's talk for just a second about God's mark. I want to encourage you that that place has already been taken. Ezekiel 9-2 is a time when there's going to be destruction in Israel. And I saw six men coming from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. With them was a man clothed in linen who had a riding kit at his side. They came in and stood beside the bronze altar. When you follow this through, that was not nine, yeah. Ezekiel said to him, nine four, sorry. Ezekiel said to him in nine four, he's sliding there. And said to him, go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. At a time period when judgment was coming on a city. Do you know what God did? He put a mark on the heads of everybody who was on his side. He put a mark there. That mark, the word for it in Hebrew is a tov. You know what it looks like? A cross. It looks, in fact... It's one of the untranslated words throughout the Bible. In, in Genesis 
one one, there's seven Hebrew words, but one of them is not translated in English. It's et. It's an alf and a tov. It literally means a strong sign, but it performs a grammatical function. So it's, it's not there. There is a strong sign that will be a mark on the forehead of any believer. Your life and your love for the Lord speak a message. It says, this place is taken. No, of course I will not bow to you or make uh, an allegiance to a beast. If you think that's only an Older Testament thing, what about Revelation 7.3? Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Do you see that nothing would be harmed until the servants of our God were marked with the seal? You know, that's not a new practice. Do you remember that the bride positionally stood with Jesus, uh, stood with God relationally? She would be treasured and then functionally she would be a priest. You remember that? Well, check this out. In Ezekiel, in Exodus 28, 36, make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it as a seal holy to the Lord. Fasten a blue cord to it and attach it to the turban to be on the front of the turban. It will be on Aaron's forehead. It will be on Aaron's forehead. The priest wore on his head. Right on his forehead, a symbol that said, holy to the Lord. People that are concerned about the mark of the beast, thinking it's a social security number or a microchip or something. I want you to understand something. Your forehead should be marked holy to the Lord. I want you to understand that if there's judgment that is coming, he will not judge you. He loves you. He will mark you so that you cannot be harmed. I want you to know that if we're talking about a mark in a hand, your hands are to be wrapped with the very word of God. There's no place to put a mark of the beast on it. Do you know how silly that is? It's funny that the people who propagate it the most don't plan on being here anyway, so it's a bit of a fairy tale. But for those of us who would not be denied the honor of standing with Jesus in the most difficult times, I have no concern about a mark. First Thessalonians 5 is how we're going to close out our mark section. Because as we move to this next topic, I want you to take heart that there's no room for a mark of the beast in the lives of the true bride of Christ. We cannot be tricked or surprised by the coming of an antichrist and certainly will not be tricked and surprised by the coming of our groom. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 1. <clears throat> now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That is always quoted and then it stops there, but you really need to keep going. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. The people who are surprised will not escape. Verse 4, But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day, what day? The coming of the Lord, should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like the others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. See, the body of Christ is not taken by surprise. We're not tricked. And we have no threat of some mark because we're already marked by our king. Our fourth 
section. Refinement, not retribution. I want to read to you from 1 Peter 1, 5. Who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You will be shielded by God's power. Why is it good to know that about the end? Because if it's true in the end, it ought to be true in your next encounter as well, huh? You don't have any reason to be intimidated. You don't have any reason to back down. You are shielded by God's power. Look at verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In this passage, your salvation is an ongoing process. And it is being refined in an ongoing process until the day that your groom shows up and it is completed. That's the exact opposite of decisionism. That's the exact opposite of rapture. This says that he's begun something in you that must be continually refined. And that it will be complete at his coming. Oh saints, do you want to be refined? Don't mistake his refinement for retribution. He's not punishing you. He's purifying you. He's proving that you are who he has made you to be. Patient endurance is better than pathetic escape. Revelation 1, Revelation 13, and Revelation 14 are chapters dedicated to that topic. I want to read you a sampling. Revelation 1.9, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Christ Jesus. Say that are ours. He took ownership of it. He would not be robbed of the purification. He would not be robbed of the chance to prove his faith was genuine. He wasn't praying for pre and preparing for post. That's a silly idea. Although I do have to admit that I am a pre. Matthew is a mid and Wade is a post. We noticed it the other day at lunch. The food was served and I prayed and said, oh my God, please help me. I don't think I can eat that. I'm a pre-meal prayer. Matthew in the middle of the meal says, oh my God, this is so good. Thank you, Lord. He's a mid-meal prayer. Pastor Wade went, oh Jesus, help me for what I just ate. Send me some Tums. He's, He's a post prayer. I know these things are incredibly sensitive to some people. You've been taught to be dogmatic about it if, if it was salvation itself. I'm simply suggesting there's a consequence to the way that you're thinking. And when you are not prepared to stand in any way, often you don't. It is um, 
a fact that Revelation 13.10 says, If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the lost. See, it's the saints who prove that they are in fact hagios, holy saints, by what they endure. Revelation 14.12, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. It's funny, people can see that Israel is the bride of Christ, but then they say she was divorced and now it's the church. Except those same people, when we get to the book of Revelation, say the, the nation that is going through this refining, kind of like a Protestant purgatory, is Israel. According to this verse, anyone who obeys God's commandments and remains faithful to Jesus are the ones that are suffering and need patient endurance. I'm here to tell you that patient endurance is your refining process. You are not appointed for God's wrath. That's true. And sometimes that verse is misunderstood because you don't realize that you are called to endure the devil's wrath. First Thessalonians 5, 9 says, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus. Of course, Revelation 12, 12 says, Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman. Now, who do you think that woman is? It's his bride and what has always been his bride. It was a mystery that along with Israel, you could be included in that destiny. As we close this topic and we move on to our next, let's be encouraged that we have the spirit of the overcomer in us. We don't have to worry even if we're being slain daily. We have the spirit of the overcomer inside us. We will be refined, but we will never be abandoned. It is often said, would God beat his bride? This is a baseless question when you consider God's word. He refines her. He never beats her. Our fifth one. Fifth is grace. I need your grace as we finish this message. I knew that it would be a long topic. We're covering a lot of ground. The fifth one is the rescue of the bride. The rescue of the bride is uh, a beautiful thing. It's likened unto the Feast of Trumpets, which incidentally is the fifth feast. Matthew twenty four twenty nine. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the Son of Man will appear in the sky. At what time? That time, after the distress of those days. His appearance actually brings an end to the distress of those days. And all nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky. Can I tell you that every eye has to see Him coming? They're going to mourn over Him coming. Because the groom is coming back to deal with those that have mistreated His bride. Damien and I were talking about difficulties that are going on. That family is fighting through it. And they're winning. Damon's a little rough around the edges. That's why I like him so much. I think it's a pretty good thing that you will behave godly in the situation, but the other person's not sure you're not going to smack them. 
I think it keeps everybody honest. Let's be honest. You're probably not going to walk up to Tamika and spit in her face and pull her hair. She'd slap you. Don't think that you're going to get away with mistreating God's bride and he's not going to come back and deal with you. Every nation is going to see that. And they're going to grieve over the way they've treated God's people and God. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. That's always the imagery. Uh, clouds of the sky, heaven, same, same word. With power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. They will gather the elect from the four winds. From one end of the heavens to the other. When does all of that occur according to Matthew 24? After the distress of those days. You find out that we have set our thoughts on wrong things and it's produced wrong behavior. The rescue of the bride brings an end to distress. The refinement of the bride and judgment of the world is starting to reach its culmination. Back to Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roaring of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. That's where we stopped the quote earlier. For fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. Notice something. This bride, she's given something to wear. It was that she was given the privilege of righteous deeds in unrighteous times. It is a privilege to be an ambassador and a witness for God during dark days. That's not a punishment. It's a privilege. The context of chapter 19 is after the whore has been exposed and judged. It's during the times of the great distress that the righteous acts are performed. And it's what makes the bride so beautiful. She doesn't just love her groom during fair weather. She loves her groom during the worst, darkest hour of the night. Tell me, ladies, is that not a good love story? You want your husband to fight lions, tigers, and climb a tower to save you where you've been imprisoned. Well, isn't that knight in shining armor also worthy of a woman that is faithful under all circumstances at all times? Yeah, well, our groom is worthy of that. This takes us to the idea that when Jacob married Rachel. When he wanted Rachel, who did he get first? He thought he was marrying Rachel and he got a Leah surprise. This has brought about the custom of raising a veil. This has changed ceremonies around the world forever. By the way, he worked for each woman for seven years. But he got both women the same day. That's a, that's a misnomer in the scripture. The reason that I'm telling you that is the scripture portrays God as chasing after Israel. And you are Leah. You are the bride that he wasn't looking for, but he got. And you know who was fruitful? Leah. Leah was fruitful. In 1 Thessalonians 4.15, there's an important point of order. 
According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are still left to the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. The historical view of this passage and the correct view of this passage is that we rise to meet the Lord in the clouds in the same way that Israel met God under the clouds of Sinai. And when we walk away from that moment, we are forever changed as his bride and priest among the nations. As we leave this topic, we want you to take heart that those that have gone before us and are in heaven today will return with Christ at the rescuing of his bride. Our victory will only be together with them. He gets the older daughter and the younger daughter. He gets it from all nations in one moment. The dead have to rise in Christ and then those who are alive. That's not an event that anybody could miss. In fact, the Bible presents the kings of this world hiding, praying for mountains to fall on them and being in caves because of it. This takes us to point number six, the triumph of the groom. If you want to know what the setting is like for the triumph of the groom, read the book of Esther. And after Esther is abused by Haman, Esther stands by and watch Haman hung on gallows. She was present... When Haman was being killed, that's what the triumph of the groom looks like. You can read about this in 2 Thessalonians 1, 4. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. What are they concerned about? The day of the Lord and when they'll be gathered to him. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Is that pretty pashat? That day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the Antichrist is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Where did God say his throne would be? Jerusalem. And this Antichrist man of lawlessness from Jerusalem will try to reign as God. In 2 Thessalonians 2 8, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. You know, I smoked a cigar late last night and a little bit this morning. And when I saw Jennifer, she said, you need some gum. But to destroy somebody with the breath and the glory of your coming. I want you to understand that Jesus is the word of God. And God staked his name on the fact that he would deliver the bride from Egypt all the way to the Mount of God glorified. And he said his name before it and after it. When Jesus comes back and speaks the name of God, the demonic powers will melt before him. Because 
those created things are now in contention with the creator and he will fix that problem. This is what we have to look forward to. You need to know that the triumph of the groom will be total and it will be complete. The question is not, will he finish the process? The question is, will you finish the process? His name is good. When he writes a check, you can take it to the bank. I believe that at an hour and 30 minutes, I don't have time to teach you about victorious Israel in Ezekiel 38 and 39. So let me just tell you that it tells the same story, but Gog is the man of lawlessness that is destroyed. The specific phrasing is on the mountains of Israel, you will fall, you and all your troops and all the nations with you. I will give you as food for all kinds of carrion, birds, and the wild animals. Which leads me to kind of a funny thing. There are two feasts that go on at the uh, beginning uh, of the new age. The last part of the old age and the beginning of the new. One is a feast with Abraham. You can hear all of the Old Testament prophets talked about it. Death would roll away. There would be aged wine and the choices of meat. Sorry vegetarians for that. It is what they said. And Jesus Clearly said in Matthew 8, 11, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their place in the feast of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. It was a mountain in Israel that heaven would descend on. That is one kind of feast. Man, I long to be united with the patriarchs that started all of this and say, we have become what he said we would become. But there is another kind of feast. Revelation 17 talks about it. Ezekiel 38 and 39 talks about it. The armies of God, the armies of Gog, Magog, uh, the armies of the Antichrist that surround the mountain of God, they are slaughtered and the birds of the air feast on them. So you will either be the feast or you will go to a feast. It's kind of a separation. It's a tale of two feasts. We want to encourage you that we are going to make it. Jesus assured us that many would come from every corner of the world to eat with Abraham. In the moment, in that moment that we're with Abraham, positionally we'll be with our groom on earth. Relationally, we will be his treasured possession. And functionally, we will be priests for the rest of the world beginning a thousand year reign. That is, in my view, what the Bible is teaching. There's a consequence to this thought. It teaches you to stand in tribulation. It teaches you that nothing is expendable. It teaches you that you are being refined in every situation. And it is never your father abusing you. It is only the enemy attacking you. And when you stand through the enemy's attack, it only shows your love for the groom more. Our seventh position and our last is Ichad. That means oneness. Heavenly climactic. Climactic Pinnacle of purpose through unity In other words This is the ultimate In our marriage with the groom It is the highest part Of our marriage Look at Philippians 3.10 I want to know Christ And the power of his resurrection And the fellowship of sharing In his sufferings Becoming like him in his death And so somehow to attain To the resurrection of the dead That is the reason that Christ took hold of Paul. And you can get the sense from Paul's speech that nothing mattered more to him than making it to the resurrection of the dead. 
The resurrection of the dead is when the spirit of the groom has so united himself with your earthly body that it is transformed into a heavenly body. You once shared the likeness of the man of the dust, Adam, but you will share the likeness of the glorified man, Jesus, from heaven. You will be made like your groom. Man, that's the ultimate in human experience. Death will no longer have a hold on you. You will have no more tears. The old order of things will have completely passed away. No more wrestling with the flesh. You are one with Him. To take us back one more time to 1 Peter 1 and verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, honor when Jesus is revealed. Those could just be churchy words or it could be an actual recipe. For your faith to be proved genuine, it must be refined by fire. But if it is refined by fire, there will be praise for Jesus. Do you know why? Praise for Him because The groom that promised salvation has now delivered that salvation. There will be glory. The glory is for you. It is a glorified body. You will look and be exactly like Jesus. Man, that's awesome. The honor. Honor for God because now His entire creation has a priesthood that is bringing it into Shalom for the next thousand years. In fact, the dwelling of God is with men. I saw the holy city, Revelation 21 two, coming down the new Jerusalem out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And the day that I saw Jennifer walk down that aisle, there's three moments in my life that literally caused my knees to buckle. The day that the Lord's presence first showed up, I fell to the ground and said, Lord, change me. The day that the doors opened and she was standing there, I didn't expect it. I was not an emotionally weak person. I didn't shed tears very often. And when those doors opened and I saw her standing there, literally my knees started to give way. I was worried I would faint. In most of the wedding pictures, my lip is hanging out like a wagging dog of some kind. It's like I'm losing my composure. The next is when my first child was born. I I love them all the same, but there's only one first experience. And when they put him in my hands and I realized, I felt like I was being baptized in the Spirit again. Can I tell you, when you have been beautifully dressed, do you know how you get beautifully dressed? You make yourself ready. You endure trials with joy. You see it as an honor to be purified for Him, not a punishment, an honor. And when you see that, You will be a bride beautifully dressed for your husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with him. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away." That is what the Bible plan and goal is aiming at. Let's put that chart up. 
I'm going to be available all day. We'll be at Forte Drive. I love questions. I love to debate these things. God does everything in sevens. The Jewish uh, rendering of eschatology that was most predominant in the first century is that there was an alpha eternity. That God um, created the heavens and the earth and nobody is really aware of when. That he is the beginning. But from the moment that he said, let there be light, it started a first day process. That that first day process uh, would last a certain time period. They liken it unto a week where every day of the week is like a thousand years. That's because Psalm 90 says it and of course Peter quotes it. The hope then was that because every day was like a thousand years and we had feast schedules going and there were seven and there were seven days in a week and God was fascinated with sevens, that day one and two, a two thousand year time period, the Jews call Yemi Tohu. This meant that things were uh, void. There was no law. It was, it was a difficult time. Days three and four were Yamot Torah. This is the time that God began to give us instruction and the world, not, not the created world, the people, the organizations that were on the earth had the light of God's word. It's uh, likened unto creation. In days five and six, the next 2,000 year period, they expected to be Yemi Mashiach. They believed that Messiah would come somewhere between the 4,000th year and the 6,000th year. We, we are in that gap right now on the Jewish calendar. And if you ask an Orthodox rabbi, why has Messiah not come? He'll say, we're waiting for Israel to repent. In other words, they're waiting for the refinement of their bride. And they believe that Messiah will come. We, of course, know that he made an appearance during this time period. But the day of the Lord, which is the Acherit HaYamim, uh, Yam Yahweh, they believe will occur at the end of the 6,000th year and that that will usher in a Sabbath for the world that the Bible calls a millennial reign. We put every event from our teachings uh, on this timeline for you as a point of discussion for when we move forward. What I would like to do as Matthew makes his way up here is ask you a couple things regarding where we're at in history this moment. To start with... Today is the 10th of Av on the Hebrew calendar. Does anybody know what the 9th of Av is? It's the day the first temple was destroyed and Babylon took Israel captive. Uh, it's also the day that the second temple was destroyed by Rome in 70 AD. It's also the day that the Bar Kokhba rebellion was crushed in 132 AD. It's also the year that the first crusade, uh, the date that the first crusade commenced on killing 10,000 Jews. Also, uh, on the 9th of Av, England, in the year 1290, uh, expelled all Jews. On the 9th of Av, in 1492, Spain expelled all Jews from Spain. The 9th of Av um, was the day that Hitler began the mass deportation of Jews from the Warsaw Ghetto en route to the Treblinka death camp. The 9th of Av is a very solemn day in Judaism. In fact, uh, when it's on a Sabbath like it was this year, they take the first working day and uh, they tend to sit in dimly lit rooms. They tend to mourn. If they read the Bible, they read only from Job and Lamentations. They, they do this because they're realizing 
that this great tribulation that they've had will end and at some point Messiah will save them. The, the story of our older brother, the Rachel people, so to speak, the ones that God has always been after. You know, Romans says, if their rejection was life for you, their acceptance will be life from the dead. The thing that God has always been after is a people who would endure all, who would suffer all, so that when he stands with them, their love has been proven. He's aware of a faithfulness problem. He's aware of it. He plans to change it. I want to encourage you, the day after the ninth of Ab, that we can learn something from Israel. No other people on the planet's been more attacked. No other people on the planet more hated for no other reason than God said he loves them. And yet, they're still there. They speak Hebrew, they're in their land, and they're still clinging to the word that he gave them. And without even the fullness of the revelation that you have. Let us not be a group of people that think that those in Messiah, us, cannot do the same. That's absurd. You need to ask yourself while we're in this position, which hotel room are you actually in? Are you giving of all of your life to the Lord? Are your finances His? Uh, Is your dreams His? Are your goals for your future, your daily activities His? Is he have mastery over every area of your life? Or does he get a few hours of your time in exchange for some kind of reward? Because that was the hourly suite. The book of Revelation separates the whore of Babylon from the bride of Christ. And it uses the most severe of trial to do that. Now, you like me may find that you are a bride of Christ, but you have some ways about you that are more like fee for service. You need to put those to death. If you will only serve the Lord as long as he's doing what you think he ought to do, he's not your Lord, you're his. If you're the man that says, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me go do this, in the same sentence that you're calling him Lord, you're also exerting authority over him by putting preconditions. Either you have totally surrendered all to him, which means whatever he says to you at any time is without question. The answer is yes before you even know the question. Or you still have some hourly rate kind of problems. You are just negotiating with him. There is no negotiation. He is worthy of unqualified, total, complete surrender. In every area of your life, the thing is, is I'm not as refined as I want to be. I say, Lord, yes, I'll do it. I will do it. I will do it. But then when it comes time to do it, I find that there's a part of me that does not want to do it. And... Sometimes because we're stupid charismatics, we're like, oh, well, the Lord told me this. It's very hard now. It's very difficult. You know, I kind of think the Lord may have been telling me to do that. We blame our whorish ways on the most pure spirit that there's ever been. I'd like to just close the service with the opportunity in worship for you to examine your heart and say, have I had an hourly commitment? Are there areas of my life that reflect fee for service rather than an uncompromised, total surrender? Because my, my suspicion is that in the most fired up church that I've ever seen with people that I love far more than any blood relatives that I've ever had, that there are some things that are unbecoming of Christians in here. That we serve God in a kind of bargain. That if he does this, then we'll do this.
That's not how it works. And testing will prove that out. When you've prayed and they've not gotten healed, when you've struggled and you've not received what you were after, the Hebrews Faith Hall of Fame is all about men who travailed for a lifetime and did not get what they were after. They are the pure bride of Christ. He's not your master as long as you serve him with conditions. Let's eliminate all conditions. Let's renew our vows now so that when we stand forever, it's pure. Our dress is pure. You might need to complete your wedding dress. It might be about half done. Jesus doesn't want to marry you with midriff. He wants you to have deeds that will complete that. Unless you're Indian, then he'll marry you with midriff. But the rest of us, not so much. Let's stand to our feet. I took an hour and 47 minutes of your time to cover the most serious subject that the Bible has to offer. And um, I'm not apologetic about it, not even a little bit. If there's anything I would change, it's probably the headset. You're already late to wherever you were going to go. The Baptists have already beat you to Luby's. It's worth taking a minute. I don't don't report numbers somewhere. I don't look for a size uh, response. I'm genuinely concerned for you. I've watched this church beaten by trials lately. We've seen some of us fall off, others confused. I've watched a fence trap people. I want you to make it. I want that. And I want to make it with you. I'm standing on the same rock that I was standing on when I moved to Sugarland. I'm not letting it go. It's all I have. And I want you to stake out your ground and stand as the bride of Christ.